I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I hope you're truly sound, safe, and of course, very healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions, at least for now, uh, of issues of critical importance to America and the world. I'm truly, truly honored and pleased to be able to host Dr. Lena Wen this afternoon for a discussion of where we've been, where we are now, and where we're going on COVID. Uh, Dr. Wen, I'm sure, is known to all of you. Just a brief intro. She's currently an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University here in town. She's a CNN medical uh, analyst and contributing columnist for the Washington Post, where she writes a weekly column and anchors the New Post newsletter, The Checkup with Dr. Wen. Previously, she served as Baltimore's health commissioner, and she's the author of the new book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Dr. Wen, welcome to Carnegie. Welcome back, I should say. Welcome to Carnegie Connects. <laughs> The first time we talked, I think, was earlier in 1920. We were then, uh, 2020, we were then in the throes of a full-blown pandemic. Um, there's a lot to unpack and a great deal is happening. And I, I, I understand, or I, I guess I know that the CDC may well be on the verge of making some important announce, announcements. So maybe you may have to, uh, to adjourn a few minutes early um, in, order, in order to react. Um, but we'll see. I wanted to divide the conversation into three or four parts. First, I wanted to talk to you about your own story. Um, this is not a book event, but here is Lifelines. It's an extraordinary, compelling read. It, it really does tell Dr. Wynn's story, and it's full of ex extraordinary surprises. I'd highly recommend it to everyone. I want to talk about where we've been briefly. I don't want to relitigate the past 2020. Um, where we are now with respect to the virus and um, and where, in fact, we may, we may be going. But let's start with your backstory. I interviewed um, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright a few weeks ago on this program, and uh, she started with an anecdote. She's at Heathrow Airport standing in line, uh, and the Brit customs official pulls her out um, for some reason. And she's late for a meeting, and she's frustrated. And she then says to the British customs officials, do you know who I am? And the Brits respond in probably one of the greatest lines of all time, no, we don't, but we have doctors available who could help you sort that out. <laughs> so I guess my first, my first question is, who is uh, Lena Wen, um, and what are the experiences, seminal experiences that you think shaped your role as a human as well as a advocacy of, uh, of the important issue of public health? <laughs> well, Aaron, it's a delight to join you and to be speaking with you once again. Um, I very much appreciated your commentary, your teaching, your analysis and leadership um, over, over the years. And um, I also remember our previous conversation. I think you're right. It was at, at the very beginning of the pandemic. And the way that I track time um, and progress through the pandemic is through the age of my daughter, because I gave birth during the pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, my baby is now is now more than a, a year and a half because I gave birth in early April. Um, and um, to your question of who I am, 
I think of myself as I think many of us do as a mom. I've got two little kids, this one and a half year old, I still call her a baby, but my one and a half year old daughter and a, and a four year old son. And um, I also think of myself as, as my profession, which is as an ER doc and as a public health expert. Um, and, um, you know, who am I also has a lot to do with where I came from. I actually, you mentioned my book, Lifelines, very graciously. Thank you for that. But um, I actually had not meant to write a memoir. I was trying to write a story based on my experience leading Baltimore's health department. And I wanted to talk about the work that we did on preventing opioid overdoses and saving more than 3,000 lives in three years from overdose. And the work that we did on reducing infant mortality, reducing infant mortality in our city 38% over a seven-year period. But in writing this book, I also came to see that, in a way, my own story is a story of public health, too. That my parents and I came to the U.S. just before I turned eight. My parents were working multiple jobs, but we still struggled to make ends meet. And we depended on public housing. Um, I went to public school throughout college. We were on Medicaid and children's health insurance program. My mother, when she was pregnant with my sister, depended on WIC and and in, in, in I start lifelines with a story of my own about how I literally witnessed a child die in front of me of asthma because this grandmother was too afraid to call for help because they were undocumented immigrants. And she was afraid of immigration authorities coming if she were to ask for help. And so all these experiences growing up very much informed my decision to go into medicine and my understanding of what public health is, which is it's not just the opposite of private health. It's so much more in a sense than health care. Public health also has to do with the air that we breathe, the educational opportunities we have access to, um, the social services and the safety net that we provide our most vulnerable. And that's who I am. And that's the work that I am devoted to. No, it's a it's an extraordinary story. And I, I'm, I might add that you do share, you describe it as your greatest shame. You You share a uh, a kind of a backstory with our current president, Joe Biden. I wonder if I wonder if you could just say a word or two about that, because I, I was just your fluidity in the way you approach um, the public conversation is so remarkable that it's it, it stuns me, frankly. I wonder if you could say a word or two about that. Sure. Well, I grew up as a person who stutters. I still think of myself as a person who stutters. Actually, my speech impediment was very severe growing up because it dominated everything that I did, every decision that I made. I was and am what people call a covert stutterer, meaning that people can't easily tell because most of most of the time I sound fluent. But actually, that fluency in a way is the problem because I focused so much of my energy on sounding fluent that Actually, I was always happy to think three sentences ahead because I would know, for example, that I might stutter on the word sandwich. And so if I'm ordering lunch, I might say, oh, the one with the turkey. I really struggled in medical school because if I were to introduce myself and say that I was on my neurology rotation, but couldn't say neurology, what was I going to do? And so I came up with all these creative ways to not say certain words that I thought I might be disfluent on. And that 
was such a great source of shame. Just the idea of admitting that I was a person with stutters was such a great source of shame that I took these extraordinary measures, including not taking on a lot of opportunities early on in, in my career for fear that people might find out that I'm a person who stutters. And so it wasn't until my mid-20s that I finally sought therapy for it, met a wonderful woman who remains today my speech therapist, Vivian Siskin at the University of Maryland, and um, and facing this great source of shame for me has been life-changing. I think it's also made me much more empathetic of so many others who have some source of vulnerability that you may not necessarily see when you meet someone. Um, and I think it's it's one of the additional things that um, that makes me who I am. So I thank you for for asking me about it. No, I thought I thought it was truly fa fascinating, and you know, reveals what vul what vulnerability can do to heightening our own our own sensibilities and sense of empathy, which I think is extremely important. Let's turn to COVID. Um, quote, uh, excuse me, colon the past. I don't want to relitigate it. Um, but if you don't know where you've been, the old saw going it goes, uh, any road will get you there. So if you had to take a look at the year 2020, uh, just briefly, um, what are the key takeaways with respect to the do's and the don'ts, uh, particularly with focusing? I do not want to relitigate this because we don't have time and I'm not sure how profitable it is to relitigate the uh, previous mistakes of the previous administration. but. What's the key, maybe the key couple do's and don'ts from 2020? Yeah, let me start with the do's because I think we need to spend a bit more time talking about the things that have worked well thus far in our pandemic response writ large and not just talking about one administration versus another, but just in general. One is we really saw science step up. I mean, science saved the day. If you had said to us when we were first talking at the beginning of the pandemic that we would have vaccines that are safe and effective, widely distributed within a year, that would have been remarkable. And so we really saw the international collaboration of scientists in a way that I don't think we've seen before. We've also seen the competence and the dedication of our professionals. And I mean, of course, our doctors and nurses on the front lines, but also our public health officials, the individuals doing contact tracing, the individuals setting up testing and vaccine centers, people who frankly are doing the life-saving work of public health every day, but that's not so apparent. And actually one of the things I wrote about in Lifelines is this based on this idea that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. Well, I think many people are seeing much more about the impact of, um, of public health in a way that they haven't. One more thing that I'll, that I'll highlight as a positive is there is much more attention to disparities and inequities. We know that COVID did not create health disparities. It certainly unveiled them. I think the Biden administration, for example, has done a really good job in uplifting um, what the disparities are and then recognizing that they're not going to go away on their own. So we have to be, we have to double down and do something about it. And I think that's that's something, at least that understanding is there in a way that maybe was not as apparent in the past. As far as things that I wish we had done differently, um, certainly, of course, the idea that public health has become so politicized and inserted in the middle of ideological culture wars that really concerns me because that doesn't just have an impact on our response to COVID, but also our response to future pandemics and to other public health issues too. 
Um, I also am, I just, it really, it upsets me a lot to hear disinformation and misinformation being pervaded constantly, including, for example, about about vaccines by individuals who actually are vaccinated themselves, but are spreading disinformation about vaccines to others. As our Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy says, that level of disinformation, it takes away people's freedom to make the best decisions for themselves and their families. And I see that happening even more now um, in a way that I think was first fueled um, with the beginning of the pandemic, the anti-vaccine movement, um, the people who have been um, questioning science all along, they've been really emboldened as of late. And I really worry about what that means in the future. You know, I, I asked John Barry, who may actually have been on the program with you, um, the author of The Great Influenza, which claimed, I think, 675,000 American lives. What his one takeaway was, he, he writes and he, he basically said this, tell the truth. And it seems to me that's one of the issues that is now at stake. When millions of Americans have a conception of the truth that is at odds with millions of other Americans, how do you effectively have a national policy with respect to anything? Trust seems to me to be, and you write about this in Lifelines, trust seems to me to be the the key ingredient. Uh, Portugal now has, I think, the highest vax rate in the world. Some 85% of Portuguese are, are now vaccinated. Um, they had a slow start, but apparently the Portuguese health system has delivered and people trust it. They actually trust and are willing to put their lives and their livelihoods into the hands of a centralized federal authority. How do you, in a system that's so decentralized like ours, how do you have a public health system that is good for the many? I don't think that the problem is the decentralization. Um, There are a lot of other countries that are also decentralized in how their health systems or public health infrastructures work. Um, As a former local health official, I really believe that things are best run on the front lines, that people who are um, who are leading the communities that they serve understand how things are done, that this shouldn't be a top-down approach. That's not to say that there isn't a role for the federal government. I think having a strong CDC, for example, actually gives cover to local um, and state health officials because you're able to say, for example, there are lots of things that are not popular, like mask mandates are not popular. It's much easier for a local health department to say, hey, I'm following CDC recommendations in a way, make the CDC or the federal government the heavy and then local businesses and and um, and 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 um, and health departments actually are empowered to do the work that that they need as uh, as a result. So the decentralization, yes, it's it's a constant tension, but I don't think that that in itself is the problem. I think the problem is what you said at the beginning, Aaron, which is so salient, which is. What happens with when different people have different conceptions of the truth? Look, I understand debating policy. And I think we should. There are lots of different things that we can debate the policy on. For example, I think it's very reasonable to debate, should we have vaccine mandates or not? That is a policy. I happen to have a strong point of view on this. So do other people, but that's fine. Let's debate that. But I don't think it is, it, it becomes very challenging when people are pulling disinformation from who knows where to say that vaccines will kill people more or more vaccines have killed people than or vaccines kill more people than COVID. I mean, when you have such disinformation like that, 
Where do you even begin the conversation? That's what I worry about the most. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. Okay, so let's shift to the present. Um, we've got roughly 189 million Americans, I think, who are vaccinated. Um, <clears throat> boosters are coming. <clears throat> Some mandates are actually working quite effectively and traction. Is it fair to say, although we're not going to COVID zero, I think you've made that point. Is it fair to say that the, well, I'll use your words, the end of the pandemic may actually be in sight? Help us think that through. What do we mean, the end of the pandemic? Yeah, I think that's the critical question of what does it mean for this pandemic to be over? I don't think it means that SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, somehow disappears. I just don't see that happening in the foreseeable future. We're not able to vaccinate the world. We're not even able to vaccinate our country. Um, even countries with pretty high vaccination rates are still seeing surges in COVID-19. So I just don't think it's reasonable to say that, well, we're not going, we have to live in our bubbles until COVID is gone because it may never be gone. It may really become endemic and we have to learn how to live with it. But that said, I think the end of the pandemic should mean, at least to me, that we're able to move it from an existential crisis into a manageable concern, that we're able to move it from something that dominates our thinking when it comes to school and work and travel and socialization to something that, yes, we consider it, but it's something that we can figure out and we can still do all the things that we really cared about in the past. I don't think we're that far from getting there. I wrote a Washington Post op-ed about this recently where I said, I think we, we need two, or rather we need three things. Two of these three things are already on the horizon. The third is not quite there. The three things are, first, we need to have vaccines available for younger children. And that's because as the parent of two little kids, I can tell you, my husband and I are generally healthy people. If we did not have our children, we would be doing a lot more than we currently are because we don't want to um, expose our kids to uh, to unnecessary risk. And I think a lot of parents are living as if they're essentially unvaccinated because they want to protect their, their kids. And so that, though, is not far on the horizon. The first week of November, we may even be able to see shots going into the arms of five to 11 year olds. And hopefully for kids my, my, um, of, of, um, of, of my children's age, we'll be able to see that sometime at the beginning of 2022. The second thing is we need oral treatments because ideally you want to turn COVID from something that is a deadly disease if you contract it to something that you can, that again, you, may, you don't want to get, but if you get it, you can still treat it. Um, again, we have um, hope on the horizon here. We have a pill, monipiravir, an antiviral um, that Merck is submitting to emergency use authorization that could well be approved and, and available by the end of this year. The third thing is what we do not yet have. That's what I am very concerned about. But also, 
it's actually within reach for us to do, which is widespread, cheap, if not free, rapid testing that's available to everyone on demand. And what I mean by this is you look at countries like the UK that are giving free tests for every family that wants them twice a week or more. In other countries, it's the norm that before friends and family get together, that everybody takes a rapid test at the door. It's the norm that kids are taking rapid tests before going to school. Testing, of course, is not the only thing that will reduce cases. It doesn't replace vaccination, for example, but it's really an important adjunct. And we are nowhere near there. I just went to my local pharmacy earlier this week to get a booster shot, and um, and they were selling rapid tests at $60 for two tests. That is not reasonable. I went to another pharmacy that was selling them for $25 for two tests. That's still out of the reach for many families to be able to do on a regular basis. And so that, you know, I, I wish that the Biden administration, I know they're putting some effort, a lot of effort into testing, but I want to see as much effort in testing as they put into vaccinations. You know, the transition from an existential threat. Uh, I often wondered, and um, I've written about this, that, you know, our greatness in the presidency is a function of nation encumbering crises, crises that are so hot, so, so uh, dangerous that nobody can sit them out. And yet we've had a crisis in this country, which on paper threatens the physical existence of every human in the country. And yet the prescription, the response has been fundamentally lacking. COVID arguably is the most dangerous world altering event since the end of the Second World War. And yet the response leaves me very worried. And we'll talk about this in a minute or two about the prospects of future pandemics as to whether or not we're prepared. Question, though, um, your prognosis, assuming your three points were, would be implemented, is an optimistic one. The virus has proved to be nothing if not inscrutable. We've had surges when we thought we shouldn't have surges. Delta appears to be declining in its transmissibility and ferocity. Are you concerned at all as we approach another winter um, of a twindemic, um, flu, covid um, how cautious do you think we still need to be between now and, and next year? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I thank you for the reminder that anyone who's tried to prognosticate during the pandemic has probably found themselves to be wrong as many times that as they're right. And so I am not trying to prognosticate in this case. I'm just saying I'm not trying to predict in the three things as to what's going to happen to COVID. Rather, I'm saying, even if we see a surge in cases, as in the ideal thing, of course, is that we get enough people vaccinated that we're able to see a steady decline. Maybe we'll get to the under 10,000 new cases a day that Dr. Fauci has been talking about. I was saying, even if we don't get there, even if we're at a very high level of infection, we can still go about most aspects of our daily lives if we have these three things, vaccines for kids, treatment, as well as um, as well as well widespread testing. Although, of course, the ideal situation is that we don't have a very high daily case count and we can go about our daily lives because the risk is much lower. Um, but to your, to your point about what's coming this winter, I don't know what's coming. I mean, it does look like the Delta wave is subsiding overall in the country, although there are certain parts of the country that are still going through crises. 
now there are some concerning signs that parts of the north and the northeast are seeing an uptick in the number of cases again, maybe due to the fact that people are going indoors. Although, as of the time that we're speaking, it's not that cold. I mean, I'm in shorts. <laughs> I live in Baltimore. I mean, the, I, I really worry about what's going to happen in the winter and over the holidays as people start getting together. You mentioned this idea of the twindemic. It's a good reminder to people that they should definitely get their flu shot in addition to getting their COVID vaccines. Um, but also, it's not just the twindemic. It's also we're seeing um, since the summer, we have seen a rise in the cases of RSV, in children, we have seen we there's paraflu. I mean, there are other viruses that are going to that are going to come. And I can tell you that with two little kids, one, one of whom um, um, is in daycare, the other one is in preschool. It, it, there's a lot that goes around in schools, and it's been very confusing. Even though I, my my kids are in places that are very attentive and follow a lot of protocols. It's very confusing because does everyone with a sniffle and a running nose get a COVID test? What happens if they test? What what happens if they test positive? Does everyone go out on quarantine? What happens if they don't test positive? But I mean, what do they get a rapid test? Is a PCR is a PCR test necessary? I mean, there are all these questions that are going to be even more um, that that are going to come into focus even more come the winter. But I think we're also going to see this big hodgepodge piecemeal response because it's just a very different environment um, um, in different parts of the country. Yeah. Before we move to the future, let's spend a few minutes talking about the international situation. Um, it seems rather elemental, both from an economic, a moral and a epidemiological point of view, that none of us are going to be safe until we're all safe. That is to say, if there are 8 billion people in the world, 49 plus percent have had at least one shot, you're still left with billions of humans who have not been vaccinated. And the inequity of the distribution of where these vaccines are actually available skews heavily to a situation where I think um, only 0.3 percent of the vaccines administered globally have been given to 29 of the world's most disadvantaged and poorest countries, which are home to roughly 9 or 10% of the global population. So help us th think through the logic of not vaccinating everyone. And by the way, I'm not sure that I've looked at the factors that would be required. The sun, it's the moon and the stars are going to have to align in order to produce, distribute, and locally manufacture, freeing up patents, transfer of technology, all that seems impossible to coordinate. But am I right in concluding that the variants will continue to evolve and spread as long as there is, are unvaccinated humans? You know, I mean, in general, yes, you're absolutely right, because we know when variants develop, that variants develop when there is replication, and replication occurs when there is person-to-person -person spread. So viruses mutate all the time. Um, it's it, it's you have to have the confluence of mutations in a way that drives um, a new variant that's particularly dangerous. So we would so we would generally look for three things. We would look for is the variant more contagious. Because the Delta variant, as an example, is so contagious that it quickly became the dominant variant because it crowded out everything else. Second is, is it more lethal? 
imagine if you have something that's really contagious, but not lethal at all. I mean, that would be ideal. I don't know that that's quite what we might have, but that is a, that is a scenario that is in theory possible. But of course, the opposite is just as likely, which is you could have a variant that's much more virulent, that's also very contagious, that that could come as well. Then the third thing is, does it evade the protection of our existing vaccines? The Delta variant, actually, there, um, there's more and more evidence emerging that the vaccines that we have are effective against Delta, but that the effectiveness appears to wane over time, especially in combination with Delta. And so this is the reason why a booster is being recommended in many cases. But you could also imagine if we have a new variant that emerges that crowds out Delta, that the vaccines are not so good on it may put us back to square one and we have to start vaccinating everyone again. And so that, you know, those are the things that, that we would be looking for. But I think to your point, yes, I mean, global vaccine distribution, yes, it's a humanitarian imperative, but it's also a self-interest issue for us as well, because we're not safe in the U.S. until we're able to get COVID under control around the world. I mean, I think it's fair to say the international community uh, has not risen to this extraordinary challenge. Uh, and I think that's it, it. It's a question of how much sovereignty our nations prepared to surrender to an international organization like the WHO to empower it at, at every level of surveillance, prevention, treatment. And it, it seems that globalization and the notion of an interconnected world is running the opposite direction of what is required to actually address a pandemic uh, effectively. Um, okay, so let's uh, turn to the future. I, I know, you, well, you said publicly uh, that there will be another pandemic. Two-thirds of the newly discovered pathogens in the world are viruses. Uh, humankind is is crowding out space where there's a real danger of this zoonotic transmission viruses jumping from, as we've seen in China, from uh, an animal host to a human. Um, and, and I'd ask the one, the one question that um, I, I, I think we need to ask, but I have no confidence that we're answering correctly, correctly and that is, are we ready? Are, are we prepared for the next pandemic? Just one last point. At least four national threat uh, intelligence assessments warned of the possibility of a flu-like illness that would kill hundreds of thousands of Americans, change the way we lived, destroy our economy, and yet we were grossly underprepared for it. And I think we're underprepared for it now. What's your thought on this? I mean, I hate to be so annoyingly pessimistic, but I got to look at things the way they are, not just the way we want them to be. Well, I'm going to be even more pessimistic in my response because I was initially going to say, Aaron, that this is the easiest question you, you've asked me yet because there is a simple one-word answer to, are we prepared for the next pandemic? And the answer is no. In fact, I might argue that we are even less prepared for the next pandemic than we were a year and a half ago. Um, the New York Times just, we were talking prior to, to the show, but I, um, the New York Times just published, a I, I thought, an excellent um, analysis of where health departments are over the country. And just to level set, 
prior to this pandemic, our local and state health departments were already in crises. They had lost about 30% of their workforce over the last couple of dozen years. There were already people wearing multiple hats at all times. The morale in the workforce was already low because it was very difficult when you're doing important work to serve the most vulnerable, when your budget keeps on getting cut every single year, um, um, everything felt like paying, uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, that, you know, the same people working on the opioid epidemic, when it gets really cold outside, they get deployed to work on the on the cold emergency. Um, they also get deployed to work on Zika. Now they get deployed to set up testing sites. But those other things have not gotten better. They just get neglected. And so we have this chronically neglected public health infrastructure at baseline. Now people are stretched even more than because of COVID and all these other issues, STIs, HIVs, obesity, mental health, all these issues have not gone away. In fact, if anything, they've gotten worse because they've been neglected during COVID. Then on top of that, you have state legislatures that have passed now more than 100 laws and many more hundreds in the works to specifically restrict the authorities of local health officials. That does not just impact COVID. And so you imagine if they take away the, the authority of a local health official to implement quarantine, what happens if there's a case of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis? If you're taking away the ability of a local health department to make masking recommendations, what happens in the future, to your point, if we have another virus that, that comes and we need masking again? I mean, public health was neglected before, but now it's neglected and politicized. And I think we're much less capable of handling the next pandemic because ultimately public health hinges on public trust. And that public trust is arguably more broken than it's ever been, or I don't know about ever been, but I think it's wor it's, it's worse than it was at the beginning of 2020. You might think that the, the sort of uh, greatest threat to public health in a century would force or cause or impel us to take a different course. Um, it gets, I think, to the nature of the system um, and the nature of federalism and the nature of how Americans perceive comprehensive solutions, systemic solutions to problems that are systemic uh, and whether or not they're comfortable with that. Um, and my sense is they're not. Uh, you have a uh, we're, we're near the end of uh, our time together. You you tell a, a story in the book oh, of parables, um, and it gets to this question that we're talking about. You talk about the parable of the of upstreaming. Can you, for the benefit of all of us as we close, um, tell us the parable of upstreaming? Because I think it's really uh, it's a fundamental truth, um, even though it's extremely difficult to bring about. Absolutely. And actually, I tell the parable in Lifelines for a different reason than the parable was initially written. And I did it for a particular reason, because I am a public health pragmatist, as, as I will get to. But the initial concept of, um, of, of or I'll tell you the parable to begin with, it's that three friends are walking along a quickly moving stream. They notice that there are children in the stream come floating by who are drowning. There's many children in the water and the first friend jumps in and saves some of the children, but many more are passing by. So the second friend runs further upstream and sees that there's a dam that's broken and says, oh, I'm going to fix the dam. 
The third one keeps on running, and the first two shout after him, why are you still running? The third one says, well, I want to see who's throwing in these kids in the first place. And so that's the that's the concept of the of the parable is, can we start as upstream as possible in order to save as many lives as possible? And that's the concept really of public health. But the, here's the issue, though, and actually... I have a twist on on this, if I if I may, Aaron, which is that um, that I think many people interpret that parable to mean we have to do everything. We there are these big problems in our society, and we need to look at the root causes, and we need to look at systemic inequities and the um, structural racism and these deep hard issues that I absolutely agree need to be addressed. Here's the thing, though: while we work on those things. What about the kids who are drowning now? What about what if we have the ability to fix the dam now? What if we even have the ability just to rescue 10 out of 100 kids or one out of 100 kids? Is that not worth doing too? And I guess my my great frustration is sometimes I think we let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes, we have to focus on these long-term actions. But while we do that, can we figure out how to help patients in the meantime? This actually um, is, is something that I think is much more indicative of our national discourse as well. Um, I'll, I'll share this, this story with you that, you know, a while ago, I wrote a piece on, on how to assist um, women who are pregnant with getting better care, um, understanding that they may be in a situation where they may encounter racism. They may encounter less than ideal medical care. How can they advocate for themselves? I was really heavily criticized for this piece, saying I am blaming women for the failure of the medical system. That was not the intention of the piece. Actually, in the piece, I specifically say, here are the actions that we have to take longer term to fix this medical system. But what happens if you're pregnant now? <laughs> you don't have the ability to say, let me wait until the system is better. You need to have the tools right now to empower yourself. And so I think there's a way to do both. I think we can commit to the long-term actions and understand this concept of upstream, but at the same time, also rescue those children who are drowning right now. I hear the great Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr in the background calling out for approximate solutions to insoluble problems. Dr. Wen, I have to say it's been an honor and a privilege uh, to meet up with you virtually again. And I can only say uh, your clarity, your honesty, your integrity makes you a, a real asset in this very fraught environment. So I want to thank you for everything you're doing, uh, for your family, uh, everything you've done for Baltimore, and and everything you, you're going to go on to do for the country. Um, thank you so much, and thank everyone. I want to thank everyone again for listening. Next Wednesday, we are going to be I'm pleased to announce that we're going to be hosting the former Special Representative for Afghan Reconciliation, Ambassador Zalmi Khalilzad, for an intriguing, fascinating discussion on two decades of U.S. policy in Afghanistan. So again, uh, Dr. Wynn, thank you so much for joining us on Carnegie Connects. Thank you very much for the invitation. And thank you again for the wonderful work that you are doing. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. 
Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.